Who listens to Drinks with Tony? You do. You are. And what happens when you get two fellas who are not only writers, but used to be college radio DJs? You get magic with a lowercase c. Welcome to Podcast Magic. Hi, this is Jay Ryan Straddle, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. And I'm the Drinks with Tony Show. All right, <clears throat> and this is the only part that makes me nervous is the beginning, because I have the to. One scripted part. Right, right, yeah. But <laughs> I need to put. Um, I go through my directions in my head. Let me put some smile into this part. Let me put a little more, you know, authoritative voice on this part. <clears throat> it's very intense. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Jay Ryan Straddle, and he is the author of the New York Times best-selling novel. Kitchens of the Great Midwest. His latest novel coming out July 23rd is entitled The Logger Queen of Minnesota. Jay Ryan Straddle, how are you? I, d- I said it wrong the second time. Oh, that's all right. Um, I'm as good as possible under the circumstances. Having a big old microphone in your face? Oh, yeah, it's fine. I'm just a little tired of trying out different types of over-the-counter sleep medication this week in preparation for a long flight. Yeah, you're going. Yeah, you were saying you're going to Prague. What, what are you? Uh, what are you doing in Prague? We didn't talk about this before. But yeah, it's um, just to just to remind the listeners, this is uh, w- this is all new conversation. We don't discuss what we're going to talk about. So, um, but I knew you were going to Prague, but I don't know why. I'm taking a poetry class at Charles University. Poetry, dude, you're a novelist. Don't don't do poetry. I'm not a poet. I just want something to bend my brain a bit about sentences and craft i'm not going to come out of it a poet i just want to uh think differently about writing if you come back and you have a typewriter and you're at union station giving people poems i don't think i can talk to you anymore yeah well i i I wouldn't worry (laughs) so that's fun so um how long are you in prague for and you said you've been in prague a few times yeah it's my third time uh this time it's just about two weeks it's a short class yeah every day for two weeks yeah have you thought about heroin for sleep? No, I don't think I'll ever consider that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I did like the Lou Reed song or the Velvet Underground song when I was a kid. I remember being 17 and having that song on repeat in the basement and just feeling feeling like I wanted to be somewhere else. Yeah. That I used to, I used to play that on my radio when I was doing college radio. Oh, wow. Um, that I, I learned that. I found that song and I was like, oh, man. And I just felt like it was, um, it fe- it just felt so evil to me, but so beautiful all at yeah. once. And, yeah. I, you know, not that I've ever done any hard drugs, but there was just something about that song that, yeah. you know, if, if I didn't grow up a Jehovah's Witness and wasn't scared to death of drugs, I may have tried heroin just because of that song. Yeah, I remember really... At first, being kind of freaked out and intimidated by, and later loving the violin playing in that song. Never heard anything like that at that point. And I was a theater kid in high school, and I had a director who got me into a lot of strange music. Yeah, he was a big John Zorn fan. Oh, yeah, same here. And Zorn is a gateway drug, man. But you can also trace him backwards to Ornette Coleman, and you know. He did that spy versus spy yes. thing that was all Ornette Coleman covers. Yeah, great. Yeah, and he 
he did a couple really cool covers himself. I remember in the 90s with Naked City, they did a cover of like the Batman theme, the James Bond theme, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Like his covers of those are wonderful. When, um, what, what was it called? Was it called Torture Garden? Was that the Naked oh. City? Yeah, that sounds familiar. I had the self-titled one, and I had one called uh, Gignallhead. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. And uh, a few of the film compilations, the film music compilations. Yeah. And then uh, Mr. Bungle, too, which he produced the first album of. And that was pretty that was pretty wild stuff for me at the time. Oh, that makes sense. That's why Mike Patton and John Zorn have done so much work together, because they worked that way back then. I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. my brother actually owns... Uh, the John Zorn produced Mike Pat solo solo album, Adult Themes for Voice. I think he's the only person I know that owns that record. It's a it's a remarkably obtuse record, uh, but I, I I loved just about anything that Zorn put out on his Zodic label. I got into it in college, and we kind of had a pipeline to it. And we uh, exhaustively played that stuff on our college radio station. And were you on college radio? Oh, big time! Yeah, I ended up being becoming the general manager of my college station. Oh, which one? It was WNUR out of Northwestern in Evanston, Illinois. So it was a 7,200-watt station. We, we had a listener reach of about 2 million people on the north side of Chicago. And so we saw it as our imperative to play stuff that other people weren't playing. I mean, I went into college. Of, you know, I was a John Zorn fan, but I was also an REM fan, huge REM fan. And I remember the rock director, the director of the rock programming at Northwestern at the time, telling me, you know, they're, they're good, but they don't need our help. Like he was very kind and diplomatic about it. He like he was a rock snob as as I eventually would sort of become and as a lot of people were, but he was very sweet about it. Like he wasn't hitting me on the head saying that music sucks, it's popular. You know, he was just like, Oh, they don't need our help, which was a great way of framing it. And it was very kind, yeah. And I felt like um, it was also a useful filter through which to determine and discern what would be played. Like, have I heard this on another station? If the answer was yes, then they probably didn't need our help. Yeah. The, um, I got busted when I was uh, doing college radio. When I was doing the great, because they throw you on graveyard shift first, so you can. Of course. Oh my God! Of and I was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You gotta want it. You gotta prove your, your, your. You gotta prove you can show up at two in the morning yeah. before you show up at two in the afternoon, for exactly. sure. Yeah. And you got. Um, you have to get that preciousness out of your system. I listened to those air checks of my graveyard shifts. Because I was just, I felt like I was God, and I'm like, I need to be on drive time, you know. And then I'd, I'd listen back, and I was like, oh, my God, thank you for putting me on in the middle of the night for six months so I can get all that crap out of my system and actually do a show without yeah. sounding like a piece of shit. So. Oh, yeah, and you also got to get stuff out of your system like, I'm going to be the first person ever to play Frank Zappa, then Frank Black, then Frank Sinatra. All in a row. It's going to blow people's minds. Like, no, it isn't. It's just going to make them change the station. Like, you're going to have to have a certain consistency, most likely, or at the very least, a flow. Yeah. Yeah, even if you want to go between these people. Yeah. Um, yeah, you kind of have to get some of that youthful excess out of your system. And 2 a.m. is a great place to do that. So by the time you've earned an evening or afternoon shift, you can, you know, uh, think about the listener and not just you. But um, the way WNUR was uh, segmented was different times today had different music styles being played. Like jazz was in the mornings. Something called Continental Drift, which was basically folk and world music, was lunchtime. And then afternoon into evening was rock music, even though that covered a lot of things. 
And then at night was uh, Street Beat, which was both hip-hop and electronic music. Yeah, depending on the DJ. And then at night was Freeform, like like 2, two to 6 a.m. basically was the... You could, it was the Frank Zappa, Frank Sinatra, Frank Black trio. Um, this show is called The Franks. If, yeah, right, right, right. if you, it, what, if what would be fun if it, what if someone did a show called The Franks and they had to play a band that all that always had a Frank in the band, <laughs> somewhere in the band. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. funny. That's funny. Yeah, I by, by by my senior year, I was running a show I'd created called The Quiet Music Show, and it was all down tempo. And ambient music, yeah, and that was great. I, I came to really appreciate that style in college, but at one point or another, as the general manager, I filled in on every show. At one point or another, I did a jazz show a number of times. I did a continental drift show once. I did a a number of street beat shows where I mostly played down down tempo ambient music, which the um, electronic DJs around me at the time insisted on calling like chill wave or something. I was like, call it whatever you want, you know. <laughs> what, what was your air name? Oh, I, we didn't have them. Uh, really? Yeah, we just, I think that was viewed as too precious or, Oh wow. yeah. So I, you wouldn't say this is, or, this is like DJ Blast Off or something. No, no. I mean, a couple, depending on the show, some people did. Okay. Uh, like some of the street beat DJs obviously had D- DJ names. Like, like Houston Charles, he was a street beat DJ. He had... Why son? He went by, and then like uh, one of the reggae guys, DJ Pierre, you know. Um, that is but, not a reggae name. No, no, <laughs> but he was he was Haitian. He, oh, okay. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah, and he kind of blocked off a, a section called uh, Haitian Nation. Oh, cool. Yeah, and so there was a lot of really cool programming like that. There was also because it was a public station, a public block. Uh, at the time, under FCC rules, I don't think this is true anymore, but under FCC rules, you had to devote X amount of hours per week towards public interest programming. And the public interest programming at the time was a show called This Is Hell, uh, run by a guy named Chuck Mertz. And the show is still going after about 20 years. Um, and um, I worked on that show as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I did... Uh, did a segment for that show called um, uh, what was it? Um, uh, the eccentric, where I did uh, fake special interest stories. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, but the uh, the gist of the show was left of left politics, and I I liked working on a show where, or like working at a, at a station where the public interest programming was unabashedly socialist. <laughs> What was it like? I mean, I remember, I remember the egos and the personalities, and I was one of those pieces of shit too, ego uh, personality oh at the dang. time. But what was it like, like wrangling all that as a general manager? Uh, typically, it wasn't too hard, especially with the rock programmers, because the prevailing ethos at the time for rock music and rock musicians in Chicago was be as undemonstrative as possible was any type of showmanship or um, or excess would be viewed as cloying yeah or pretentious like the most of the rock DJs spoke in a very quiet monotone voice yeah yeah it became a kind of a house style 
Like if you enunciated too clearly or spoke too loudly, you were standing out in a bad way. Really? Yeah, you really kind of mumbled and whispered through your set. That that's just. Is, uh, do they still do that type of format? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's been it's been a few years now since I've listened to WNUR, even though it's easier than ever. You can stream it any time of day. Um, oh, you have shortwave radio? Oh, well, no, just through the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Ham radio, please. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did someone have a C- CB they just put up against yeah, the speaker? Right, right, right. right. We, yeah, oh, my God, because, like, for the San Francisco Bay Area, it was all about, you had to make your personality. Oh, interesting. So, and there was, like, five college radio stations. There was KUSF in San Francisco. We were at KFJC. So yeah. you could drive all over the Bay Area and get in. Was Foothill College, uh-huh. and then we had uh, Calix, and that was Berkeley, and KSJS, that was San Jose, and on the peninsula we had KCSU, and that was Santa Clara College, wow. and they had more of a um, format, more toward a modern rock, where you would hear REM on there, and we would all okay. scoff at it and be like, those pieces of shit. Yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, but on KFJC, we were all about, like, it was just play, play difficult. Oh, KZSU, Stanford. I mean, there's... Oh, wow. I would even call the DJ when I was doing the graveyard. I'd call their DJ. I'd call the DJ at KZSU because we were they, we were eighty nine point seven. They were ninety point one, and I'd be like, "Hey, you want to have some fun and play the same song just to fuck with people?" <laughs> and so we would sync up oh, playing the same song, so people would think that they their radios were screwed up. <laughs> oh my god, I love it! I love it. How how to you get yourself through a two a.m. to six a.m. shift? Because yeah. no one was calling either. It's just like. Here's the number for, you know, we begged. At the time, we begged for uh, people to call in. but yeah. And then you realize, oh, wait, don't beg. And then they all then they all call in. And then you don't want them to call in. so Right, right. Then all of a sudden it becomes a thing. You yeah. Know? yeah. When I was at Pirate Cat Radio in San Francisco, they were like, put, keep putting the phone number out. And I was like, no. I would go into the studio and I would unplug the phone from the wall. Oh, wow. Because they were like, we need to get, we're a community. We need to let people in and get them on the air. And I'm like... I know how to do a show, and the answer is no. Yeah. So that was Drinks with Tony. So That's great. Yeah. So you started Drinks with Tony back then? Oh, yeah. In 2002, I started taping it. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah. And then I, when I came to L.A., I stopped because of the film stuff, and okay. I was just like so... It was just full steam ahead. And then last October, I had a, a existential crisis, and I'm like, what do I enjoy in life? I was like... I, I liked doing drinks with Tony and talking to writers. Let's just do that again. Yeah. And here we are. <laughs> Who was your first guest? 2002? Yeah. Mark Haskell-Smith. Oh, wow. Great start. Yeah. Have you had him back since? He's uh, he's on it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And he was the first one on um, the when I started in um, October. He's, he, yeah. he's kind of like my, like uh, if I'm David Letterman, he's Bill Murray. Oh, got it. Got <laughs> it. That's wonderful. That's a great, great guest. He writes about such varied topics too. Like he's always got something interesting to say. Yeah, yeah. I, and he's and he's teaching as well. So it's just so much fun to dig into his craft brain, you know. Because yeah. uh, I dig into his craft brain so I can learn. I'm like, so uh, you know, how do you, how do you do this for our listeners? But it's really for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell all the listeners out there how to complete my novel. <laughs> my early drinks with Tony shows were that. Yeah. And then I would ask how. How did you get your agent? I would ask, and they would just tell me, and that's how I learned the book biz was by just putting microphones in people or put or bringing them in studio. Yeah, and a lot of people have different stories on how they got their agent. I got mine. Well, I heard about mine 
through uh, a friend. You may know him, Rob Roberge. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's going to be on in a week or so. Oh, excellent. Yeah, Rob's wonderful. Rob was one of those writers who was generous enough to say, you know, your work may be a fit for my agent. He might know where to place that book, and I'll happily send you the email, and you can query him. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I was told from a writing mentor of mine, Lou Matthews, was don't ever ask another writer if you can query their agent. Wait for them to volunteer it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Try not to be that guy, you know? Uh, And Rob helpfully volunteered it. I took a a class with him at UCLA Extension. And then I studied under him again when he and Gina Frangello were running a program in Mexico. Yeah, they, they ran a program down there, another voices program for a couple of years, and I was a student there once with, with Rob when I was working on my first book, and he comment he made that comment while reading a couple of my after reading a couple of my sample chapters. Yeah. Because I think it is important for someone to discern whether if work is a good fit for a certain agent, because agents have different tastes and connections just like anybody in the industry and you know, just because someone is a big name or or, or an agent at all doesn't mean that they're a good fit for everybody. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, Rob was very helpful. And I also received positive replies from queries I I wrote cold from just looking people up on the uh, Publishers Marketplace website. I subscribed to that and then looked up the list of who is selling what, like looking at books that I thought resembled mine. Or also doing Google searches on agents that were looking for new clients or querying junior agents or people that have recently been promoted and they always got back to me quickly and often positively so those were all helpful but I did end up going with the agent I met through uh, Rob for a couple of reasons and one, one of which was that he is a fellow Midwesterner and really understood what I was writing about that's rad and that's it just shows I'm like it shows that you kind of have to take classes and kind of be in the mix because you just can't come up to a, a, an author and go read my stuff. Right. But when you, if you're workshopping stuff, I've had students where I'm just going, "Oh, this is going to be good," and and you just you just know they have they have it. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. But it's rare. <laughs> oh sure. Yeah. But it's it's nice when you see it. So the, the so w- what was great about. The success of your first novel. You went to what was it like becoming a New York Times bestseller? And the rain that on me because I haven't had that yet. Can you just rub it all over me? Oh dang! <laughs> if I if I knew the alchemy, I would. I, I I wish I knew how that happened because I I'd love to replicate it. It's hard to say. Yeah. My agent told me recently that something like ninety-seven percent of all fiction writers on the fiction bestseller list have been there already. So it's very hard to break in. Wow. Yeah. What was the? What was there? A phone call or email? How did you find out you were on the list for your first book? Oh, there was a phone call. I was getting a massage at the time. Yeah. I was. Really, was it an erotic massage? No, I'm afraid not. <laughs> it was really stressed out. I was really stressed out. I just finished the first leg of my book tour, so I was back home after two weeks on the road. Yeah. And I was home getting a massage, and well, no, I was at, out at the place. I'm sorry, I was home in L.A., but I was at a at a place and. I could hear I could hear my phone buzzing, and I picked it up afterwards and returned the call. And he told me um, it was my agent calling. And then later on, my editor called, and everyone was really happy. It was only on for three weeks, but I'll take it. You know, it was uh, 
a heck of a thing to happen. I was really shocked. Yeah, yeah really shocked. What's I mean? What's the? Is there kind of like a like maybe like this isn't really true kind of thing when you got the phone call? Do you have to wait till it's in print and then still you're like, wait, someone's still making a joke of me or something? Yeah, yeah I almost do. Yeah, you feel like um, it just can't be proven enough. You know, you yeah. you look at it again and again and go, really? That's that's it? That's that wasn't photoshopped, you know? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 really surreal. Yeah. I kind of feel the same way about just having books out there. It's almost like it doesn't feel real. Yeah. You kind of see it on the shelf, and you're oh, like, yeah. that feels not me. Yeah, that's still true. Yeah. It's still true, you know. And uh, I was just at Skylight the other day, and I checked to see if my first book was still in stock there. And it is, and it's fun to see. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when I was touring for the first book, uh, my publisher paid to have it in airports, which I found out is a thing. Like, really? Yeah, they have to pay for that. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Huh. So it was nice that they did that. And flying around the various stops on my book tour, seeing that, and seeing it in airports in places like Kansas, too, you know, not just in Chicago or L.A., where they're the larger airport bookstores, but um, in smaller, smaller venues where there are, there's less shelf space, I thought, wow, that's really cool that someone will be able to access that book here. That's the real trick. I mean, I feel very lucky to be in the situation I met with the distribution and everything. You know, I just hope that, um, you know, you always hope that people give it a shot, that, like, whenever uh, someone would DM me or post on Instagram that, oh, I read your book, I, I usually the first thing I would think of by way of response was, thanks for giving it a shot. I mean, who am I to you, you know? Yeah, I, I don't deserve to be read. I haven't done anything particularly different from other writers, so thanks for checking my book out. It's such a, it's kind of non-tangible when you're the author because it's, you're, they're having their experience with it. And then sometimes you can't take their experience away because then they're like, oh my God, I can't believe you wrote about this, this, and you touched on this emotion. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, and you're like, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I believe you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I just tell people, just nod your head, let them know, let them have their experience and, yeah. and they think you're a genius. Yeah. Yeah. As uh I'm going to quote Lou Matthews again. He says, always be ready to take credit for what other people read into your work. Yeah. <laughs> but what, there's something beautiful about that because everyone's going to read something into it because we bring our own experiences when we read. I mean, when I read things, I'm bringing, you know, many years of baggage to it. So. Yeah. yeah, that's one of my favorite things to do as a reader yeah. is to employ my own imagination in assistance of the narrative. Yeah. It's... it's um, it, it, it that's that's one thing I like. It's always about, especially when I'm uh, teaching this stuff, just letting that negative space be. Just I, I have this thing: don't insult your audience. Just yeah. just just pull back, and let them. They can fill in the blanks. They're going to get it, and they're not going to want. The, you may not get exactly what you want, but they're going to have a much more emotional pull to it if they bring their stuff to it. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I mean, I feel I feel privileged that people read it at all, much less get an emotional response. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I, um, are you in Entertainment Weekly uh, this week? Yeah, it was uh, last week. Yeah, yeah. I got it. Do they give you half page? Yeah. Like, that's pretty wild. I actually didn't expect that. And and if I remember right, did somebody illustrate you as well? Yes. Yeah, I got best looking drawing of me ever yeah i was 
that was pretty wild. I didn't know that. I didn't know any of that would happen. I was interviewed by them, but you know they did little capsules on a lot of people, and then I felt like, oh, you know, they're really going to pare this down into a paragraph or two, and I didn't know I'd get that much material. It was, yeah, it was, it was, it was a surprise to see. I just mailed a copy to my grandma in Minnesota. Yeah. Wait. Um. Now, can you get a copy of that illustration? And did you talk to them about that? Oh wow, I didn't. I I should. That's a good idea. I know. I know. With the New Yorker, when they do illustrations of uh, like people, um, they they'll sell them to the author or to the person. They're, they're, the 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 illustrator takes a fee. But yeah, I would totally be on whoever illustrated that. I'd just be like, "What do you need? Uh, I need the I need a, I need the huge one. You know the." Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. that's great. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Yeah, I've written for the Wall Street Journal a few times, and I have one of those like uh, Wall Street Journal sketches as well from the times I've written for them, and that's cool. Yes, yes, yeah, that was cool to see. Yeah. Did they get? Did the? Do you have a good copy of it? I mean, the, of the... Oh, somewhere. Yeah, somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, that's like with the uh, with when I wrote for Penthouse a couple times. I got those caught. Co- I I got those cop. No, my photo didn't get in there. I sent them naked photos, but they oh, okay. they just said no. We just want your words. And um, I know it was you know I was like, hey, look, I can do this, and they're yeah. like, that's that's really cute. You're bordering on sexual harassment. I'm like, you're yeah. Penthouse. Anyway, it's just fun to write for porn and then also for like other magazines like Mother Jones and stuff, and just be like, yeah. Yeah, I have uh, I have other friends who have occasionally written for Playboy or Penthouse as well. Yeah, yeah. I did. Li- um, well, that was just music and literary coverage. It wasn't yeah. like they actually are very high end on their journalistic ethics and standards, and okay. you got to sign a contract. It's like did keep it your tape really good oh. to the point where it's 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 almost too easy, and you just get to talk to your heroes. Wow. So, yeah. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. They, who knew, right? Yeah. Um, well, I was gonna ask you something else, and I can't remember what it was. But what? what here's what I've always. Here's whenever I hear your name. Yeah. This is where this is. You're looking at me like, oh God, oh, where okay, we, where yeah, the where the hell are you going? Whenever I hear your name, I think of a baseball player just because I want to hear the announcer say your name. Huh. So it's just like, you know how like the announcer like really announce. You know, it's just like, you know, batting seventh. Second baseman, yeah. Jay Ryan Straddle, yeah, yeah, <laughs> without yeah. the uh, puberty thing. At the end. Right, right, right. That's funny. Yeah, no, I haven't had that honor yet. I, I, I feel like you need to be announced like that sometime, and I just yeah, like that. Yeah. With entrance music, walk-up music. Oh my yes. What, what would be What would be your song? Probably "God's Away on Business" by Tom Waits. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> Perfect for a baseball crowd. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I, have you seen Tom Waits live? Oh, never. Never. I, I wish. I think I got into him a little late. Uh, you know, it was I was 25 when I really sunk my teeth into Tom Waits. I mean, I'd heard him. I had I'd owned swordfish trombones in high school, but I wasn't, like, chasing down, like, his, his already rare live shows by then. And now he basically doesn't play it play out at all. And so I, I kind of I feel like I kind of missed the boat. I mean, certainly if he chooses to play live again, I'll I'll pursue it. But um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, uh, my partner is also a big Tom Waits fan, and I know she'd be down for it if, if it involved travel. Like if he's going to do one show in San Francisco or something like that, we'd be like, yeah, if we can get tickets, we're going. But uh, 
No, I haven't. Have you? Have you seen him? Oh, yeah. How is he live? Oh, my. He is. Well, the first time I saw him was I was just married and I saw him at the Paramount Theater in Oakland. And he does like two and a half hours, maybe even three. And it was. was so he was just married to Kathleen then? He was. His kids came out and they were really young. Oh, wow. Okay. So I don't know. Okay. But, um, and he was on piano. And, um,. Yeah, because I, I found out one of my neighbors in Bernal Heights was his horn player, and I had just been friends with him, Ralph Carney. I had no clue that he was a musician. We just see each other around town, and she's like, "Hey, what's up, dude?" But anyway, when I uh, this is when I should have divorced my wife, because about an hour and a half in, she's all, "Let's go home," and I was like, "What?" She's like, "This is going too long." I'm like, "No," and we had a fight, and she went and sat in the lobby for like an hour. While he still played, and I'm like, what? "Yeah, I know. I should uh, that would that should have been the end of the relationship wow. right there." Wow, that's startling. Yeah, I mean, I'm upset with myself because that just shows really bad choice, you know. Yeah, I imagine you know, Tom Waits can I suppose can be an acquired taste or isn't for everyone, but you'd you'd think you'd at least give him the benefit of uh, observing the entire show before you come to that conclusion. You do that with most musicians, unless they were patently and personally offensive. Yeah. And then even even the offensive ones, I like. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I've I don't think I've ever left a show unless I found it simultaneously um, unchallenging and like lacking proficiency. You know, sort of substandard musicians. Playing boring, boring music. Yeah. And why would you even go see that band? Well, you wouldn't like you don't always know that going in, especially when you're younger. Yeah, you'll find yourself in situations where um, you're going to see a friend's band, and then they're opening for someone, and the band that comes on after them is nothing special, and you'll go, okay, I think we'll just leave instead of watch the watch the. Uh, Headliner. Yeah. I did that once uh, when I was with uh, my ex-girlfriend. We, they, Pussifer, I think they call him. It's oh. t- it's Maynard's band from Tool. Oh sure. Uh, yeah. We had third row seats at the Palace of Fine Arts. Third song in, I just wanted to kill him. I hated it so bad, oh, and she hated it so bad. We just walked out and wow. yeah. yeah. But but I think I'm in the minority on that. I don't know why. Maybe we just wanted to go home and have sex. Maybe there was just like a little irritation, <laughs> anger thing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I don't think I've ever walked out of a show that big. And there's certainly been shows that I was disappointed in. Um, like, I remember seeing Lollapalooza 2, for example. Oh, yeah, yeah. Was that with Ministry and the... Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Ministry, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, uh, Ice Cube, Jesus and Mary Chain. And the headliner amidst all of that was the Red Hot Chili Peppers, who were... In my opinion, pretty easily the worst band on the bill of that whole group. They were one of the bands I would say I liked less after having seen them live. Yeah. But they were going through a bit of turmoil at the time, which I wasn't aware of. You know, they weren't at their best. I'm sure if I'd seen an earlier iteration of them with Hello Slovak, perhaps I would have gotten why they were so popular. Well, they, I saw them with Hillel probably about 10 times before he died. The, it wasn't just them; it was the crowd. It was, oh, everyone was just—you would just go nuts at a Red Hot Chili Pepper show. Yeah. And then the minute he died, and then when they came back with a—they came in back. 
eventually, but they had a few people in between, right? Yeah, they had the, when I saw the one guy in between, and they just got the um, they just got some MTV coverage. Oh, the yeah. whole crowd was just different pieces of shit, oh. motherfuckers. And I'm just I left I left that show early. I'm like, I'm not gonna be around this um, jock fest of people trying to slam dance with each other, and they don't they don't know it's just fun, you know. It could be yeah, a little thuggish. Yeah, once they got bigger. One band I liked more after having seen them live was the Beastie Boys. Because I was afraid that crowd would be jock thugs. And at least when I saw them, it wasn't. Yeah, it was very upbeat. Wait, what tour was that? That was at one of the Tibetan Freedom Festivals. It was on Randall Island. So it was in their home turf. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure plenty of people like me traveled to see that show. I... I, there were multiple bands on that bill I was interested in. I mean, they were the headliner, but that show also included Radiohead, R.E.M., and Bjork, all of whom I really loved at the time. And the Beastie Boys, I thought, well, am I going to stick around and watch them? Really? Yeah, and I'm so glad I did. They were such an amazing uh, live show. Um, and my fears about it, about the audience were unfounded. Because going into that experience, I also thought, well, they could end up being one of those bands that like. I just don't like their fans. Yeah, but no, they were they were quite a quite surprising, you know. I mean, the and the audience was remarkably kind of upbeat and positive and friendly. Yeah. And was it uh, M- MCA the one who died? He was really like he, he got into like Buddhism, and there was a, there was a I think that brought a vibe to their fans where it was just like. There was kind of a, hey, you know what? Yeah, we used to talk about um, she's crafty and calling them bitches and stuff. Yeah, but yeah. now we're in a different situation. We've grown up a bit and we've, you know, and kind of join us if you like. And if you don't like, don't come kind of. Yeah, and that's that, and that's the exact era in which I saw that show. Yeah, they were firmly in that era. Yeah. I, saw, I think I saw them on the Ill Communication Tour with L7. where um, And that one, man, I brought a... I brought this, uh, he used to be a little brother to me, but this is back when I was still around the Jehovah's Witnesses, and he was, he was 14 at the time, and um, he'd never been to a show like that. And the minute they went into the, um, their punk rock part of the, because they, they did the... Oh, yeah, 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 and then they I had the, that. Yeah. Uh, that was another thing I loved is, like, they did the three DJs, or, or the three mics and a DJ kind of thing, and then they would, um, you know, do the guitar-based drums thing, too. And they very excitingly and seamlessly transition between them yeah the, the minute they hit that first chord the whole crowd because yeah. we I, I, we got right we, we kind of squeezed, squeezed our way right to the front the whole crowd went nuts and he jumped on me and just clung to me he was so scared of what was happening i'm like wow. i'm like don't worry brother it's a, it's all right we'll be fine and it just freaked him out two years later he's stage diving but oh, you know at yeah. that yeah. that he just had to know baby steps yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i haven't been in a mosh pit and Oh, well, I shouldn't be in one now, but haven't been in one in like 25 years. And I remember how intimidated I was during my first one. Yeah, just like being on the orbit of being in that, you know, the kind of the crust of that that swirling pie and just wondering at what point do I enter this and how am I going to get tossed around and, you know... Teenager, you can yeah, you can tolerate that. Yeah, I used to love like the bruises. Like if I got home the next day, the bruises felt so good. It was like a high. Yeah, I remember I got blood on me, not my own blood, but someone else's blood on me in the Rage Against the Machine mosh pit. 
I never got to see them, and it bums me out. I never went and saw them. Oh, they were intense. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, that was one of the most intense mosh pits I've ever seen. Yeah. Which is, I mean, I guess that sounds kind of thuggish, and they're, they're, everything about them is like kind of not thuggish. They just have a aggressive sound. Not at all. If anything, they're sort of like a, a punk Noam Chomsky. You know, they're. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't see anything in their music that specifically. Um, agitates for for like violence against your fellow man. I mean, maybe against the the elite, you know, but certainly not, you know, you know, fellow um, teenagers working for minimum wage, you know, which we all were at the time. Yeah, um, I remember seeing Fugazi around that time too, and and they they were great, and they very specifically dissuaded moshing. They would lead with it at the beginning of the show. Like I remember Ian Ian Mackay saying, "Have a nice time." Like, don't hit each other. Have a nice time. Yeah. And I like that a lot. I got, sure. like, some of the pressure off uh, wanting to get closer to them. Because as a young music fan, quite often if you went to a louder music show, you thought, like, either I stand in the back and not get hit, or I move up to see them closer and I someone's going to kick me in the head sooner or later. And if you were with a girl, um, chances are they didn't want to be in the mosh pit. I mean, some did, but more often than not, they're like, ah, it's not for me. And so, yeah, so you either had to decide, like, am I going to get a good view of the show or am I going to get punished? And the nice thing about those Fugazi shows where you didn't have to make that choice. Yeah. And yeah, and I would just, like, pogo kind of the whole time because I couldn't yeah. keep, I could not keep still. It was just yeah. like, oh, yeah, yeah. I, it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You could still move. Yeah. You just weren't supposed to, yeah, throw yourself into someone. Fugazi also always played with great bands too. Like their openers were always a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. I saw them in Chicago with uh, the makeup and shellac opening, and the, it's one of my favorite bills of all time. Yeah, the makeup I saw many times. That was probably the Discord band I've seen the most was the makeup or or some iteration of uh, Ian Savonius. You know, yeah. That's rad. And so you grew up in Minnesota, and then you and then you ended up in Chicago. Did you go? To, did, in Minnesota, did you go to Chicago to see bands when you were a kid, or did oh, you kind of? No, I, I. Oh, can you say "oh no" again? Because that Midwest accent just. Came oh no, oh gosh, no. <laughs> Growing up in Hastings, we'd drive up to St. Paul or Minneapolis to see shows, and that'd be about the extent of it. Sometimes we'd go into Central Wisconsin for festivals, but I don't even think we went as far as Milwaukee, let alone Chicago. Yeah. Because that's like, I mean, that's probably what a seven-hour drive. Seven or eight hours. Yeah. Yeah. It's like going. It's like if you live in San Francisco, going to San Diego to see a band, which right. is okay. That, right. that wouldn't. yeah. What was um? Did you get to uh, for Minnesota? I mean, for the Twin Cities. Yeah, I think replacements and Prince and yeah. I, I never saw. I, well, I did see the replacements on the reunion tour. They broke up before I could drive, so I didn't see their. I didn't see them when um. Um. Yet when their original iteration was intact. Yeah, so I didn't see them with, like, um, some Dunlop or, you know, the original. Yeah, yeah, I didn't see that. I don't think, you know what, I saw that, and I saw Paul Westerberg's solo. And I got to tell you, that Paul Westerberg's solo around 2006 was better than the last replacement show I saw. Because he just, he pulled out all the hits, and it was coherent. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I never saw Husker uh, Du either. Oh, I've only seen Bob Mould do an acoustic set once. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's great. 
he recently he yeah he recently toured as well he played a show in minnesota a lot of my friends went to yeah what um so growing up in the midwest because i'm from the bay area and i now i'm in la winter scares the shit out of me so <laughs> one how do you how did you deal with winter growing up or was it just something you just that you that you um that was just so normal in your life you thought everyone had it Ah, oh, boy i knew there were other ways to live You'd see movies and TV where people. <laughs> that was. <laughs> I gotta say, you need to be a politician just on the answer to that, because <laughs> that was rad. Um, I. Question: Can we can we pause for a moment? Oh yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. All right, now we're back. I hope you enjoyed that music interlude. And um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I know yeah. I did. Yeah. Now, okay, so we know winters are bad. All right. Yeah. Now, now we'll now we'll cut to something else, which is um, writing about the Midwest. You're 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 kind of uh, you know giving the like the the coastal cities us people who don't know some. Well, I know I know about Wisconsin and stuff, but. You're giving us an insight into Midwestern life, which is awesome. Oh, thanks. I felt um, I wanted to see more of that in the world. There are plenty of writers that write about the Midwest, but I wanted to write about the people I grew up with and the setting I grew up with in a way that I haven't often seen. And so I, it's funny. I mean, I've lived in Los Angeles for 20 years, and I'm not compelled to write about this place. I'm compelled to write about where I'm from. I, it, that's funny. I've been writing a lot about Los Angeles oh, myself. I may eventually. Yeah. I won't be surprised if I do someday. Yeah. But not yet. Huh. Yeah. Not not inspired to just yet. Maybe because maybe because you're too happy. You have to you have to get the. <laughs> I know. Uh, recently, someone called my books utopian. I'm not sure if I'd go the, quite that far, but there is a certain element of of hope to them, or a or a just a uh, maybe a brightness or a optimism to an extent that isn't as present in contemporary literature maybe yeah perhaps that's what they were getting at i mean i remember i asked jim rulin once can you think of a utopian book and he said yeah the bible (laughs) that was a great answer uh because yeah you're hard-pressed to think of utopian literature right yeah and even the i I don't the bible is scary as hell what what bible did he read (laughs) Well, I think in terms of what it what it promises to deliver, yeah. Like if you read the Gospels, then yeah, it's the, exactly, the utopia. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I don't know. I guess it would have to be self-help books, right? Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a great answer. Yeah. Which, I, I mean, I, I try to read those as much as possible, too. I, I need all the help I can get. Sure, sure. That's how, I got, that's how I got into writing. I was so depressed. And I, a friend of mine had uh, killed himself. And I was trying to get help from the elders in the Jehovah's Witness congregation, and they were like, "Oh, he's dead to us because he was excommunicated." So communicated for attempting suicide. He he killed himself after he was yeah, and um, so I was feeling suicidal myself. I didn't know what to do, so I went to the library, found the psychology section, and started reading Tony Robbins. And I have to credit Tony Robbins for getting me into the library and then finding out what a novel was. 
Wow, that's fantastic. So Tony Robbins' program does work. Yeah. <laughs> He's a goofball, but I, it's just like at the same time he does like, he was an easy like gateway into, oh, wait, this is how things work if you, you know. He, he gave the simple answers that I needed. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's another way of thinking. It's a way of recalibrating one's perception, too. Yeah. I have a friend, Amber Scora. Her first book just came out, Leaving the Witness. Oh, you're friends with her? Yeah. Oh my! I just got in touch with her publicist you should, yeah. because I want to interview her. I had no idea that was coming out. And as yeah. an ex Jehovah's Witness, that's very awful of me. Yeah. No. I think I think you'd I think she'd be a wonderful subject for you. Um, yeah. And her book's wonderful. Yeah. I think we we may have the same publicist. I know we're pu- both published by Viking. Okay. So I'm not sure if she actually does have the same publicist as me. But oh, Maya. Sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, Shannon. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, and uh, she's wonderful, great person, very kind. Yeah, and her book just came out on Tuesday, and yeah. I, I she got on the Daily Show. She got on the Daily Show, which is so cool. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. I have you read the book? Cause I I, yeah. I need to read it. Oh yeah, I love it. Did did, uh, did you give you like? I should lend you the galley. Yeah. If you, well, if Maya doesn't send you one, Maya might send you one. Yeah, I think it's in the mail. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's great. Yeah. So now, you, so you know all about me now. It's, <laughs> Well, um, may, maybe even aspect of your life experience, but not not yours personally. No, I don't presume to know that. Yeah, but I know I do think she'd be a wonderful guest just on that alone. But also in terms of writing craft and her unique journey to becoming a writer, because you know she didn't go to college or at least uh, didn't have a conventional education. Yeah, you know, uh, came into uh, culture and literature and. Um, Unexpected and somewhat circuitous way, you know, by dint of her upbringing. Cool. Yeah. That's right, and she was a missionary too. That's yeah, that. Right. Yeah. China. Yeah. yeah. That those were like those were like, essentially, if you were a mis- if you're a missionary in the Jehovah's Witness, you are like godlike, and oh. if they if they if the missionary comes to visit your congregation, you give them free food. You they are just like wow. yeah they're that they're like kind of a level. That's. Different than like the the rank and file Jehovah's Witness. Wow, that's wild. Yeah. But, um, and back to you. You have books coming out. What am I talking about? How does that's it feel? Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I enjoy talking about other people's books. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What um, as you come out in July, are you are you are you and do you have a tour set up? Yeah, I do. I start touring right away the day the book comes out. I'm in Minnesota, and then uh, I've got tour dates all the way through the first week of November. So I'm on the road pretty regularly. July through early November. I, I I did take some time to take at least one week off every month to recharge, but um, I'm pretty steadily on the road most of the late summer and fall. Can your lady come with you? Yeah, she's coming with for a lot of it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. And then so that life on the road will be not lonely then at least. Yeah, less lonely, yeah. It might be a little disorienting for her. It's a lot of uh, you know, a lot of hotel rooms and uh, and flights and long drives sometimes, but it's uh, yeah, it's 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 an honor. I mean, I I don't I don't um I, I certainly don't take it for granted. The um, <laughs> uh, now we get back to uh, let's see, 
because uh, we were talking about that that one author that was the Jack Jehovah's Witness. Oh, yeah, yeah. So much fun. I know. I but I got to have her on the show. I can't. Yeah, we no. we can't have her. We can't have you as the stand-in. Oh no, no, no. <laughs> I I don't presume to speak for her. She should come in. Uh, now, how do you know her? Do you know her through writing? I I know her through our publisher because our publisher packaged four of us on a little media tour, pre-pub tour, in the late winter. Where we went to D.C., New York, and Boston, and met with the media in each of those cities, and uh, lined up interviews and shared galleys, signed galleys, and um, kind of laid the foundation for uh, book events in those cities as well. Yeah, it was ver- a very nice thing for our publisher to do to fly us out there and s- send us, you know, up the coast and and uh, and get our names in the heads of uh, people who might write about our books later. Yeah. Well, um, now that now that you have the book out, how, are you uh, working on your next one? And if you, oh, okay, how far are you along in that? I'm about 150 pages into the first draft. Yeah. Do you, uh, is, is that how you write? You just go first draft, and then after that, you start tinkering on the other draft. Oh, I'm tinkering already. I think I'm already gonna recalibrate it somewhat. Yeah. But it's all good. I as as I've uh, developed as a writer. I've become increasingly less sentimental about my work. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Like, I, I could write anything and a day later feel like, oh, I don't care how good that is. I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to reuse it. I'm going to tear it apart. It's all, all in service of the story. Like, what's the best way to tell this story? And once I figure that out, everything else has to fall in line. That's that's the end of it. That's the beginning and the end. Like even serving the main character, it's the serve the main character, serve the story. That's right. and get and get out of the way, which is so hard for a lot of get authors. Get out of the way. Yeah, exactly. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Um, what what other stuff do you do outside of writing? What's what's your thing? What 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 hobbies do you have? Um, this this is like your online dating. Uh, if 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 you were single, I I I did way too much online dating, so I've had to write down my hobbies. You know, which is just like which is like weeping in fetal position in the tub and stuff. So yeah, but peas. Yeah, I do that a lot. I thaw vegetables. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and watch them thaw and just. It's great. Yeah. No, that's narrative. I feel like I don't have a lot of extra things I do right now. I used to be a little bit more extracurricular in my adult life, and a lot of those things started to shave away as I became a novelist. Right now, I just do that full time, and uh, I, you know, I don't do music anymore. Uh, oh, you were in a band, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I was in bands until I was about thirty-three or so. Um, yeah, that's a, it's kind of about it. I. I mostly read and write. Now, the the eighteen or twenty twenty one year old you would would um, would they know that you would be a full time novelist and be stoked about it? Oh, they would have been so stoked. They would have hoped for it. They wouldn't have seen an avenue in which it was possible. I I doubted my ability to do it then. I was dead set on pursuing a different career for money because I was convinced that writing would never be more than a hobby. I felt like I'm going to have to find some other way of making money as an adult because I can always just write on the side. And then what was the moment where you went, wait a second, I have to go in this, like, you know, I have to go in this with all my, like, blood and guts and soul. 
Um, I'd say around 2009 when I figured out that I was having a hard time writing consistently, keeping the the flow going day to day, but just writing before work. And I thought, if I save up and take a year off, I think I could finish a draft of a novel in a year. And so I started saving money, and by 2013, I was able to take that year off. And that's when I wrote Kitchens. I did start writing Kitchens when I was still working, but when the show I was working on wasn't renewed, that's that was my cue. I thought, now this is when I tap into that nest egg and I don't apply for or accept any other jobs. I just hole up and work. And because they, I had a ticking clock in the form of this winnowing savings account, that was all the incentive I needed. Yeah. Plus I had a plan. I had a pretty good plan for the first book in terms of how it was going to be structured and how it was going to bring everything together. Yeah, I wrote some chapters that didn't make the book. It always happens to me. But um, overall I felt it was pretty tight. You know, the, the narrative structure of Kitchens of the Great Midwest was pretty circumscribed. There wasn't going to be a lot of, of excess. Yeah. Um, oh, were you, on a, were you a writer on a TV show? Oh, uh, not strictly, no. Um, I was producing reality shows. So I was doing some writing. I was writing voiceover and that kind of stuff, but no, I wasn't working on a scripted show. Yeah. And then... Um, then I was going to ask you something else about the about the the, 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 the dwindling savings account is amazing because that there's this thing where you need a gun to your head almost uh, to get something done for me exactly yeah I think it's true for a lot of writers it's hard to write without some kind of external incentive I think that's why MFA programs have become so popular at the two dates and the peer groups and the and the pressure of writing along other writers that are your pace cars. It is helpful to know other novelists in this community here that have that have strong work ethics. Yeah, I could because I also feel it's a very supportive community out here. It's very um, uncompetitive. It yeah, it, it's because coming down from San Francisco, you know, San Francisco. I used to be in the Mission District, and you could, you'd throw a rock at someone, and they're a writer. And this was in the '90s, and then and then now that's kind of gone and the there's just the I, the ju- the creative juice is just lost it's all squeezed out when i came to la i had no i mean i knew a lot of like writers down here i had no idea how rad it was that there were so many writers and everyone and the novelists i'm not talking tv writers this is like strictly novelist the community is rad and it's just it's so expansive because we have so many different regions of the west side and the you know where we're at in Los Feliz, you know, Skylight Books, we got Book Soup. Yeah. You could go anywhere, any night of the week, and see one of your favorite writers. It's fantastic. That's true. That, and that's so cool. That was one reason I wanted to live in this city, was because it everything comes here. Yeah. And I've noticed that, plus my writer friends from San Francisco moved to New York or L.A., so it, I just keep seeing my writer friends keep popping in. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, don't tell anyone else because my rent will go up, you know. But Yeah, and lately there are more novelists moving here to uh, get into script to TV as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like uh, it's got a, such a robust literary community. It's underrated. 
Yeah. I, people, I just people don't know it until they've been here for a while. But I kind of like that it's underrated. Yeah. It feels a little, it feels scrappy, of like out looking outside in, and then you come in and you're like, oh no, everyone's like, it's solid. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Well, um, oh, I was just gonna ask you something else, but the caffeine in my coffee has just got me got me swirling. I'm so high on coffee right now, dude. Oh, good. good. Um, oh, your next book. Uh, that's what I was going to ask you. Is it also set in the Midwest? Yes, it is. Yeah, it's set in, in Minnesota. Okay. Yeah, almost exclusively. I think there are little bits in Wisconsin, but 95% Minnesota. Yeah, mostly in two fictional towns, but some action in real towns. And my hometown is dramatized for the first time. Yeah. You know, and I, I and I gotta just um, say I'm really upset with you because I I'm I, I'm taking a month off of drinking, and yeah. to read all about lager, uh, just uh, fucking killed me, man. Oh yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I've had other people tell me that that I don't like beer, but now you make me want to drink it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm just I was like salivating, go. I need to put this down, or I'm gonna go buy a beer. And I told myself I'm not gonna drink for 30 days. Yeah, exactly. No, no, you're you're doing something worth doing, like. Yeah, stay straight. Yeah. <laughs> with that, uh, Jay Ryan, thank you so much for being on the show, man. Oh, thank you for having me, Tony. Great talking with you as always. Jay Ryan Straddle, everyone. Check out his best selling book, Kitchens of the Great Midwest, and his brand new novel, The Logger Queen of Minnesota. He's also on book tours starting July 23rd in cities like St. Paul, Kansas City, Houston, Wichita, Cambridge, New York City, so much more. Go to jryanstraddle.com for the full tour list. Hey, thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. If you like the show, please rate it and review it. If you don't like the show, you are a glutton for punishment for listening for over an hour. And if you have rabies, those shots in the belly are no fun. Keep on reading, writing, and doing your literary thing. I'll see you next week on Drinks with Tony, and have a great weekend.